0: The worldliness is a satanic system of ungodliness that opposes God. Such a system includes any and all philosophies or ideologies that are opposed to God or reject the truth of his word. It relates to the Greek term hedone, by which the modern term hedonism is derived. Hedonism propagates the idea that if it feels good, do it. Thus worldliness emanates in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. James revealed two risks associated with worldliness for believers. First, worldliness creates conflict with others. It begins with lust, then hate, covetousness, envy, and finally ends in quarrels and conflicts with other believers. Second, worldliness creates enmity or hostility with God. It creates hostility because believers, once enemies of God, are again behaving in such a manner. It also creates hostility with God because he has set us apart to be a bride for his son. When we flirt or fornicate with worldliness, we commit spiritual adultery, cheating on the one who loved us and gave his life for us. So how then are we to overcome worldliness? James revealed that God gives grace to overcome worldliness. Since God provides grace to overcome worldliness, James now presents ten commands for you and I as the remedy against worldliness in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. He gives us the remedy against worldliness in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. In James 4, 6, James quoted Proverbs three thirty four: God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now verse 7 begins with submit therefore to God. The therefore in verse 7 shows the remedy against worldliness derives from this Old Testament quote. You see those who are proud exalt themselves. And since God is opposed to the proud, believers must submit to him. Verse 10 concludes the remedy with humble yourself and the Lord will exalt you. Exalting believers is what is meant by God gives grace to the humble. Now, since the first command and the last command, submit to God and humble yourself, come directly from the two parts of Proverbs 3.34, they form what is called an inclusio. According to the Lexum Glossary of Theology, an inclusio is a literary device that repeats words or themes at the beginning and end of a section. The use of an inclusio implies that the information enveloped between the beginning and end statements is bound together. Each statement is dependent upon the other like links in a chain. As well, the inclusio is like a flashing arrow pointing to an important theme or topic. James' use of the inclusio directs believers to a series of commands structured in such a way as to provide the remedy for worldliness. The structure of the eight commands between the inclusio is outlined in a series of three couplets. So we begin with an inclusio, submit to God. That's followed by couplet number one, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Then we have couplet number two, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then we have couplet three. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into gloom. And then we have the the last inclusio, humble yourself. These three couplets, by the way, form the 16th triad of James' epistle and give us the remedy against worldliness. So let's begin in chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Remedy number one, submit to God. The first remedy against worldliness is to submit to God. Now, the term submit, (hubitaso) means to place yourself under the authority of another person. The passive voice of the verb indicates that we place ourselves under this authority willingly. Scripture repeatedly commands us to submit to various authorities. For example... We are to submit to government. Romans 13.1 Every person is to be in subjection, hupotasso, to the governing authorities. 1 Peter 2.13-15 Submit, hupotasso, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Believers are also to submit to the elders of the church. You younger, likewise, be subject to your elders. 1 Peter 5.5 Husbands and wives are to mutually submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 Be subject, hupotasso, to one another in the fear of of Christ. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 7, wives be submissive, hupatasso, to your own husbands. You husbands, in the same way, which implies be submissive, live with your wives in an understanding way. And servants are to submit hupatasso, to their masters, 1 Peter two eighteen: Servants be submissive to your masters with all respect. So the first remedy against worldliness, according to James, is to submit to God. Hence we are to place ourselves under God's authority willingly. Now God's authority is revealed in the precepts and principles of his law. Hence, if we ignore or disobey God's law, we are rebelling against God. Paul stated in Romans 8 7 that the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject. Hupatasso itself to the law of God. And that verb subject in Romans 8-7 is the same verb as submit in James 4-7, And just as Paul stated, so also James says in James 4-4 that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And the reason we are fleshly or worldly-minded is that, in the words of Paul, we do not subject ourselves, we do not submit ourselves to the law of God. Hence, James commands us to submit to God and by extension, his law. Ultimately, submitting to God is humbling ourselves under Christ's lordship. Ephesians 1.22 He put all things in subjection hupatasso, under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now let's continue with the next part of verse 7 into verse 8. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw Near to God, and He will draw near to you. So, remedy two and three resist the devil, draw near to God. The first couplet of the Inclusio provides the second and third remedies against worldliness resist the devil and draw near to God. These two commands demonstrate both negatively and positively what it means to submit to God. James drew these two commands from the Jewish pseudepigraphical work, The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. In Book 7, the Testament of Dan, it states this, And now, my children, fear the Lord, and take heed unto yourselves of Satan and his spirits, and draw near unto God. You can see that theme, or hear that theme, uh, take heed of the Satan and his spirits. Resist the devil, draw near to God. Now, just as an interesting aside... The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs is quoted by Paul and James at least five other times. In 1 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul says, But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's a quote from the Testament of Levi 6.10. The wrath of the Lord came suddenly upon them to the uttermost. In Romans 12.19, Paul said, Leave room for the wrath of God. It comes from the quote in the Testament of Gad, chapter 6.7. Give vengeance to God. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation, which comes from the Testament of Gad 5.7. For true repentance after a godly sort destroys unbelief and guides the mind to salvation. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, comes from the Testament of Naphtali 3.1. Do not corrupt your doings with empty words to deceive your soul. And in, back in James chapter 3 and verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessings and cursings, comes from the Testament of Benjamin 6.4, a good mind hath not two tongues of blessing and cursing. Returning to the subject of James 4, the second remedy against worldliness is to resist the devil. The verb resist, anthistomy, means to oppose or set oneself against someone. The means of resisting or opposing the devil is in putting on the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 13. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist anthistomy in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. See, the devil, the diabolos, refers to the one who accuses or slanders. In the Septuagint, Diabolos translates the Hebrew term Satan, or Satan. Satan's chief work is to separate us as believers from God. And one of the ways that Satan tries to create this separation is by slandering us before God. Job chapter 1, verse 9 and 11. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, Then he showed me, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan also creates separation between God and believers by tempting us to sin, particularly in the realm of worldliness. When we succumb to Satan's temptation, we give him fodder for his accusations. On the other hand, when we oppose Satan and his schemes, he will flee from us. Satan cannot fight back against us when we resist or oppose him and are outfitted in the armor of God. The third remedy, so the second remedy is resist the devil. The third remedy against worldliness is to draw near to God. The verb draw near in Gizo means to come near. Worldliness creates hostility with God. When we forsake worldliness by submitting to God and resisting the devil, we then come near to God. That is, we make a determined return to God. Now, in the Septuagint, the verb in Gizo often translates the Hebrew term karab, meaning to approach God in worship. Leviticus 10 verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near karab, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Numbers chapter 16 and verse 9, It is not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near, Kerab, to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. But the idea, however, of, of worship does not fit the context of James 4.7. Notice the second half of verse 7. He will draw near to you. If the verb draw near means to worship, then the verse would translate as worship God and he will worship you. A better understanding of the verb draw near is its usage in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 6. Therefore return to your God. Observe kindness and justice. And wait for your God continually. In the Septuagint translation of Hosea 12.6, the term wait translates the Greek term "angizo," which translates the Hebrew term kavah. Kavah means to bind together, and the idea of bound together implies fellowship. Hence, Hosea called Israel to return or repent of their sin and commit themselves to love, to justice, and to fellowship with the Lord. Hence, the verb wait implies fellowship with God. So when James commands us to draw near to God, he is exerting us to fellowship with God. Of course, as Hosea noted, fellowship follows repentance. If you've cheated on Christ with worldliness, you must repent. And when you do, fellowship with him will be restored. God will no longer consider you enemy, an enemy. Rather, he will draw near, or fellowship, with you. So to recap so far, remedy one, submit to God. Remedy two, resist the devil. Remedy three, draw near to God. Now, remedy four and five, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Verse eight, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the second couplet of the inclusio reveals the fourth and fifth remedies against worldliness: Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. The structure of this couplet follows the Hebrew parallelism typically found in Jewish poetry. In parallelism, the second line parallels the first line. In other words, cleanse your hands is parallel to purify your hearts. And the term sinners is parallel to double-minded. Now previously in verse 4, James referred to his readers as adulteresses. Now he calls them sinners and double-minded. And by calling them sinners he's implying that they intentionally disobey or neglect God's commands. If you neglect God's commands, if you disobey God's commands, you're a sinner. Again, James holds sinners and double-minded in a parallel position, which tells us then that the particular sin of which these believers were guilty is double-mindedness. What's double-mindedness? Double-mindedness to sukas, used only here in the book of James, coined by James, most likely, to express the idea, the Jewish idea, of a divided heart. Psalm chapter 12 and verse 2, They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. See, double-minded or double-hearted is a reference to believers with divided loyalties. In other words, the believer's loyalty is split between God and the world. And anyone trying to please God and conform to worldliness is double-minded. Jesus said in Matthew 6:24, No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Furthermore, James revealed that the double-minded are unstable in all their ways. That is, they're confused and in conflict with themselves. And to that end, James issues two commands, clean your hands and purify your hearts. Now let's just take a pause here and take a little evaluation. Are you a sinner? Are you double-minded? Are you guilty of that sin of divided loyalties? Are you trying to love God and love the world at the same time? You can't do it. You can't serve two masters. It's impossible, Jesus says. And so I challenge you to take stock. Take a personal evaluation and consider where your loyalties lie and if they lie completely with God or with the world. If you find yourself double-minded, clean your hands, purify your hearts. Now James draws these two commands from Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. See, David asks, Who's qualified to stand in God's presence? In other words, who is qualified to draw near to God, to fellowship with God? And the priest supplied the answer, that the only ones are those who have clean hands and pure hearts. Cleansing the hands and purifying the heart were part of the purity ritual required of both priest and people before coming to worship God. Furthermore, the Old Testament use of hands denotes a person's deeds or actions, while heart denotes one's disposition or attitude. So then the fourth remedy against worldliness is to cleanse your hands. The verb cleanse, katharizo, means to make morally clean or purify. For James's Jewish readers, the verb immediately conjured thoughts of the ceremonial cleansing with which the priest could approach God. Psalm 26.6 I shall wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord. Hands typify an individual's outward life. Hence, cleanse your hands means we must purify our outward life from sin. The fifth remedy against worldliness is to purify your heart. The verb purify, hagnezo, means to make morally clean. It's a synonym for katharizo. And it conveys the idea of consecrating yourself or setting yourself apart from sin. It was required of the Levitical priest to purify themselves before performing their priestly duties. Numbers 8, 21 to 22. The Levites, too... Purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then, after the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. See, the previous command involved the cleansing of your hands or your outward man. The focus of the command to purify is the heart or inward person. Again, these two commands parallel each other. Cleanse your hands means purify your outward life from sin, whereas purify your heart means cleanse your inward life from sin. To have clean hands implies you have right actions, and a pure heart denotes you have the right attitude. So, to ask the que- or to answer the question, who can stand in God's presence? Who can draw near to God? Only those outwardly and inwardly cleansed of sin. Only those with right actions, motivated by the right attitudes. And so to rid yourself of worldliness, you must do the hard work of removing and forsaking sin. So, remedy number one, submit to God. Remedy two, resist the devil. Remedy three, draw near to God. Remedy four, cleanse your hands. Remedy five, purify your hearts. Now, in verse nine, we have remedy six, seven, eight, and nine. We have four remedies here in verse nine. Be miserable, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's the third couplet of the inclusio, and it gives us the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth remedies against worldliness. Be miserable, number six, mourn, number seven, weep, number eight, turn your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom, number nine. Together these four commands can be summed up in one thought, repent of sin. My friends, if you have flirted or fornicated with worldliness, I challenge you, I exhort you, repent. You will never submit to God. You will never draw near to God without repentance. And whereas cleansing hands and purifying hearts reveals the act of removing and forsaking sin, these commands highlight your attitude, or the attitude rather, behind genuine repentance. As John the baptizer commanded the Pharisees in Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What fruit or deed should accompany genuine repentance? Well, James provides the answer in verse 9. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning. Unsurprisingly, James invokes the prophetic call to repentance from the Old Testament. The commands, be miserable, mourn, and weep, were used by the prophets to call the people to repent of sin before judgment fell upon them. Particularly, James alludes to Joel 2.12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And just as Joel called upon Israel to repent because God's judgment was imminent, so James calls us to repent because the coming of the Lord is near. James 5.8. As an aside, this threefold prophetic call to repentance, be miserable, mourn, and weep, is the 18th triad of... James Epistle. So the sixth remedy against worldliness is to be miserable. The verb be miserable means to sorrow or grieve over sin. You should sorrow over your sin because it offends God not because it was discovered. Second Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance leading to salvation without regret. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, sorrow because sin was discovered is worldly sorrow. Like all other types of worldliness, such sorrow ends in death. Godly sorrow grieves or is miserable because sin has offended God. Now, as stated, in the Old Testament, the prophetic call to repentance began with fasting. Here, James used the verb be miserable to parallel the idea of fasting. Throughout the Old Testament, fasting was associated with humility or self-affliction over sin. 1 Kings 21:27 or 23 and 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the Lord said, "Do you see how Ahab was humbled himself before me?" Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Ezra chapter 8 and verse 21 Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before the Lord. Fasting is the act of depriving one's body of food to demonstrate sorrow for sin before God. The verb humble means to afflict oneself. So, the purpose of fasting was to afflict oneself or make oneself miserable. Certainly, being deprived of food would make anyone miserable. Admittedly, one should be miserable or afflicted over their sin. The seventh remedy against worldliness is to mourn. Mourn, Pentheo, is to experience grief or sorrow over one's wretched state. Whereas be miserable denotes an inward grief, mourn is an outward display of sorrow. In the Old Testament, genuine repentance was displayed with fasting and mourning. The Hebrew term for mourning, misped and sapad, mean to lament or cry out or wail in sorrow. Such mourning was usually associated with the death of a loved one. For example, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days of mourning for his father. So often mourning would be accompanied by going barefoot or tearing off one's clothes or putting on sackcloth. In the Old Testament, adultery murdered a marriage and resulted in the death of both the adulterer and the adulteress. When Israel sinned by committing spiritual adultery against Yahweh, they were deemed adulteresses, and as such they deserved death. And so the prophets and priests co-opted the mourning over death and associated it with the outward display of repentance over Israel's spiritual adultery. Jeremiah 4.8 For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Micah chapter 1.8 Because of this I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. You know, when the Corinthian church tolerated immorality, Paul charged them with arrogance and a failure to mourn. 1 Corinthians 5 2. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. My friends, we all have the responsibility to mourn over our sin and the sin of other believers. How much different would the church be if instead of talking about the sins of others, each believer mourned and prayed for their fellow believers who sinned? The eighth remedy against worldliness is to weep. Weep is to openly and profusely lament or cry over your sin. Like mourning, weeping is also an outward display of sorrow. The Hebrew term baki, translated as weep, is not related to tears as much as it is moaning. It's a robust verbal expression of emotion. Judges 21.2, So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Peter wept in this fashion after he denied the Lord, Matthew 26.75. Peter remembered the words which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Regarding the idea of bitter weeping, John Oswald stated, It may be said that there is no genuine repentance apart from a bitter sense of sorrow over one's sin, a sorrow that is so deep that it may quite properly issue in weeping. How many of you have actually stopped to consider that Genuine repentance is more than just saying sorry. It's more than just making a verbal admission of guilt. According to Scripture, repentance is both internal and external. It begins with afflicting yourself for being miserable over your sin. Have you ever been miserable over your sin? Repentance isn't just afflicting yourself for being miserable over your sin. It continues with an outward display of sorrow that is visible and vocal about your repentance. Oh Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for doing this. That's not genuine repentance. I've got news for all of us. We need to be miserable. We need to afflict ourselves. And then we've got, we can't just put on this happy-go-lucky face. We've got got—we've got to sorrow. We have got to, if it's genuine repentance, it has got to affect our Outward appearance. We've got to weep. We've got to cry. And we've got to moan. We have got to cry out to God. Consider the words of Isaiah. When he appeared in the presence of God. He said, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We've got to understand that repentance is more than just, sorry, Jesus, I sinned. It's not real. Genuine repentance is both an inward and outward action, it's visible and it's vocal. The ninth remedy. Against worldliness is to turn your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. James adds this command of the previous three to reinforce the need to take worldliness seriously. Without a doubt, he's alluding to Jesus' own words in Luke 6, 21 and 25. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now the verb be turned, metatrepo, is to change or transform. Now, you may wonder at first glance, what's wrong with laughter and joy? That they should be transformed into mourning and gloom. But by understanding the Old Testament usage of these terms, the modern reader will have a better understanding of this command. Now, typically, there's nothing wrong with laughter. However, in the context of James 4, the laughter, gelos, refers to improper or unseemly enjoyment of the lustful pleasures of the world. In the Old Testament, such laughter is the mark of the fool who scorns right living. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 6. For as the crackling of the thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. Jesus used the term laughter in the same way in Luke 6, 25. Woe to you who laughs now, for you shall mourn and weep. And regarding joy, Kara. One of the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Galatians 5.22 We're commanded to rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 This joy refers to gladness that results from knowing our sins have been forgiven. Why then would James tell us to turn our joy into gloom? Again, we need to remember that James places joy in parallel to laughter. In this case, joy refers to the hedonistic philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Genuinely repentant believers will transform their enjoyment of hedonistic pleasures into mourning and gloom. Mourning is that outward display of grief or sorrow over one's sin. Gloom refers to being downcast or dejected, a dejected appearance. You see, genuine repentance is transformative. When confessing and forsaking sins, believers will openly grieve and appear sorrowful they will accept complete responsibility for their sin. Have you done that? You're not going to make excuses. You're not going to shift the blame. What does it say when, if you're confronted with your sin and you simply shrug your shoulder and laugh it off? It says your faith is not genuine and your religion is worthless. And now we come to our final remedy. Remedy one, submit to God. Remedy two, Resist the devil. Remedy three, draw near to God. Remedy four, cleanse your hands. Remedy five, purify your hearts. Remedy six, be miserable. Seven, mourn. Eight, weep. Nine, turn your laughter to mourning. And now remedy ten, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, James 4.10, and he will exalt you. Again, here's the final remedy of worldliness. James has come full circle to where he began in verse six with the quote from Proverbs 3.34. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Interestingly, the Nazbi translates the last part of verse of Proverbs 334 as he gives grace to the afflicted. The translators picked up on that Hebrew nuance of humbling oneself as afflicting oneself, which ties back to the thought behind be miserable. Humility begins with repentance. The verb humble, nao means to be brought low or to be placed in a lower condition. And he qualif- quantifies the verb with the phrase in the presence of the Lord. To be in the presence of the Lord is to hide one's face and be aware of one's wretchedness. Isaiah 6.2 The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. Verse 5 I said, Woe well, is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, as I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, there's no place for pride in God's presence. And as such, to humble ourselves in the Lord's presence is to recognize our spiritual poverty. It's to acknowledge our need for divine help, and it's to submit to God's commands. Have you done that? Have you recognized your spiritual poverty? Have you acknowledged your need for divine help? Have you submitted to God's commands? God, in turn, will exalt those who humble themselves. Interestingly, humble in verse 10 is the verbal form of the term used in verse James 1 verse 9. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Now in verse 10, the Lord exalts those who humble themselves. Exalt, hupsao, means to make prosperous or raise to a place of honor or dignity. The promise to exalt the humble is seated throughout the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2, seven, the Lord makes poor and rich, he brings love, he also exalts. Proverbs 29.25, he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. In his expose of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, Jesus taught the same truth in Matthew twenty three twelve. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Following Jesus' teaching, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. God exalts you, believer, by giving you grace. Grace to the humble. The grace or the ability to overcome sin and worldliness. How many of you today are professing Christ, perhaps even serving in the church, yet you ignore the helpless, you have no control of your tongue, you're angry, you're hateful, you're jealous, you're covetous, and you're fighting with other believers. To all of you I say this, submit to God. Are you doing that? Resist the devil. How about that? Are you doing that? Draw near to God. Are you you drawing near to God? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. How's your attitude? How's your actions? Be miserable. Mourn and weep. Are you exhibiting genuine repentance? Is there genuine emotion and sorrow over what you've done to God? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy in the gloom. And finally, humble yourself. Father God in heaven, I thank and praise you for giving us the remedy to worldliness. Though we confess, Father, it's not not easy. It's hard, it's difficult because we've got a lot of work to do. And the work begins by submitting to you and ends with humbling ourselves before you. It's taking ourselves off the throne and putting you on the throne where you belong. And so, Father, I pray that you might help us. Help each of us, Father. Help us to grieve. Help us to sorrow over sin. Help us to be sick over our sin so that we might genuinely repent, so that our fellowship could be restored. I pray, Lord, that we would examine our attitudes and our actions and if if, if, if either or both aren't pleasing to you, that, Father, we might confess and forsake those. Help us to stand against the evil one so that we can come near to you and fellowship with you again. Help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to you and to your word, even to the difficult things of your word. Even though our flesh may not want it or desire it, I pray, Lord, that you would break that flesh so that we would want to please you. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.